World War II was truly a global conflict with over 50 countries involved. The stakes never seemed higher. For the Axis powers, it was about remaking the world, breaking the West, and defeating communism. For the Allies, it was about preserving freedom and individuality and creating a more peaceful world with open markets. More than 100 million soldiers took place in the conflict, but not all of them were fighting with guns. There was obviously a lot of administration and infrastructure to deal with, there were code breakers and spies, and there were even some who were engaged in secret deceptions to trick the enemy. This episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, coming in October, the same month as Halloween, is not about ghosts, but rather the ghost army. No, this was not a battalion of unstoppable undead like what Aragorn brings with him against the forces of Mordor, but a dirty tricks tactical deception unit the Allies deployed in Europe near the end of the war to fool Axis commanders. Because, as the saying goes, all's fair in love and war. This episode is partly a cynical attempt to lure in military history fans, but also these are just really interesting stories, and you might consider them to have been, in fact, conspiracies, but ones that were, by and large, successful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Bodyguard Bodyguard of Lies, Lies. The Ghost Ghost Army, Army, and and Wartime wartime Deception. deception. As always, you can subscribe and review, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Sucker bait. This is a term used by stage magicians. In 1940, the general officer commanding in chief for the Middle East, Archibald Wavell, oversaw operations in the Iraq, Syria, East Africa, Crete, Greece, and the Western Desert, which is mainly Egypt and a part of eastern Libya. In fact, for a long time, he was the only British commander actively engaging with Axis forces. With so many operations going on at once, he needed every tool he could find. So, he sent a letter to his superior on November 13, 1940, saying he wanted to form, quote, a special section of intelligence for deception of the enemy. He also specifically requested an officer who'd been with him the previous decade in Palestine, a man named Dudley Clark, who had, as Wavell put it, quote, originality, ingenuity, and a somewhat impish sense of humor. Clark was not only later called the greatest British deceiver of World War II, but was also the man who established the British Commandos, the Special Air Service, and the U.S. Rangers. 
Clark accepted the invitation and had a personal request of his own, a flamboyant former stage magician and illusionist named Jasper Maskelyne, who he knew from MI9 in Cairo. Maskelyne had been thinking that his knowledge of magic tricks could absolutely be helpful in warfare. He once held a demonstration for military officers by hiding a machine gun position using mirrors, and he also created the illusion that the German warship Goff Spey was sitting on the Thames. For this, he used mirrors and a scale model. In Cairo, he'd built special tools to aid soldiers and intelligence agents to help them escape when captured. Things like tiny saw blades hidden inside combs, tools hidden inside hollowed-out cricket bats, and playing cards that had very, very small maps on them. After the war, he'd write a book titled Magic Top Secret, in which he made several wild claims, including the existence of something he called the Magic Gang during the war. Almost none of what he said in the book was actually true. In 1983, David Fisher wrote a biography of Maskelyne titled The War Magician, which was almost turned into a film by Peter Weir and Tom Cruise, but they had such a hard time figuring out how much of what in there was true and how much of it was just fantastical self-promotion on Maskelyne's part, and he died in 1973, so you couldn't ask him. And Fisher, well, he seemed to just swallow everything that Maskelyne said wholesale, and so they ended up canceling the project because they couldn't figure out what was real. So, not always truthful, as befits an illusionist. But Maskelyne did have some successes fooling the Nazis. Once he joined up with the new unit, the Germans were poised to attack the Egyptian city of Alexandria one night. So he built a replica of the city out of lights in the desert nearby while having all the lights in the real city blacked out. To bombers from the air, it simply looked like that was the city down there and they were slightly off with their calculations as to where it was. As the bombers flew overhead, he set off explosives in various places in the Mirage City, making it look like the German bombs had struck their targets, which then led other bombers to drop their ordnance in the same places. The fake city got hammered, while the real Alexandria received no damage. When the Germans prepared to attack the Suez Canal, Maskelyne had powerful strobing lights projecting more than 100 miles up into the sky. The German pilots could not see the canal and so they couldn't bomb it. Finally, they just gave up and returned to base. During Operation Crusader in the 1941 siege of Tobruk in Libya, Clark tasked Maskelyne and artist Stephen Sykes to construct a dummy railhead in Egypt intended to divert bombers from the real railhead that they were using. In September and October 1942 in Egypt, as part of the Western Desert Campaign against the German General Rommel in the lead-up to the Second Battle of El Almain, which would end up being the beginning of the end for the Axis in North Africa, a project dubbed Operation Bertram was thought up by Dudley Clark. The idea was to confuse Rommel about where exactly and when the Allied attack would take place. So Clark came up with a number of ruses to make the Germans think that one thing is true while the Allied forces secretly did something else. Now, part of this was physical. Fake armor, artillery, and material were constructed while the real stuff was effectively camouflaged. Dummy tanks and artillery cannons, for example, were built out of wood and palm fronds, often around a simple jeep skeleton if it needed to move. Real tanks were then disguised to look like trucks using hinged canopies called sunshields, which could be added or removed in mere minutes by a two-man crew. Field guns, towed behind Morris C-8 drive tractors, were disguised as long trucks using cloth canopies nicknamed cannibals because they, quote, ate up the weapon or vehicle being concealed. 
Now, vehicles need petrol, which has to be stored and moved in specific types of cans, and it was discovered that stacking these in shadows inside trenches effectively hid them from the air. All these deceptions, in fact, were successful because Clark knew that air surveillance was the only method the Germans had at their disposal. None of this would have stood up to an inspection on the ground. Food was also stacked in certain ways and then covered with canvas to give it the shape of a truck, things like this. In the meantime, dummy stacks of petrol and food were built elsewhere. They even built a dummy pipeline to make it look like the whole army unit was 50 miles further back than it really was. A sub-operation called Operation Canwell involved faked radio traffic that reinforced the illusions presented by the physical objects. As a result of this work, the German general in charge of the Panzerarmee in the region, Wilhelm Ritter von Thoma, thought the Allies had one more armored division than they actually did and that the attack would come from the south. Another general, Georg Stuma, saw aerial surveillance photos and thought the Allies looked like they wouldn't even be ready for an attack for a few more weeks, maybe at the end of November or in early December. But then when the attack actually commenced on October 23rd, the Germans were completely taken by surprise. It was all over in 19 days, and the battle was a turning point for the British. As Churchill put it at the Lord Mayor's Banquet on November 10th, This is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. He would later note in his memoirs that one could say that before this battle, they had not had a victory, but afterwards, they never had a defeat. So, turns out this deception business was working a good deal of the time, and some of the top brass had all sorts of ideas. Could we hide the entire island of Malta, which was being bombed to hell by the Germans? In fact, Malta would have the distinction of being the most bombed place of the entire war, with more than 3,000 bombing raids happening in just two years. The answer was no, though they did try using decor airplanes and fake airstrips. But still, nice outside-of-the-box thinking. In early 1943, Clark and Maskelin initiated Operation Slybob. This was the construction of a dummy submarine using old rail cars, a wooden frame, wooden metal beams, and tubing. The idea was to place it near the Italy to Tripoli shipping routes and so distract the Axis forces until British warships could sneak up on them. Slybob was so convincing that some British commanders who knew nothing of the secret operation, almost sank it when they spotted it near the Suez Canal, thinking it was a German sub. However, it had multiple problems, and before they could properly deploy it, they had to abandon the project. But the whole Slybob experience gave them another idea. Hey, why not take an old cruiser that was about to be retired and make it look like a battleship to use it as sucker bait? Suckerbait is a term stage magicians use as part of misdirecting an audience. It's something that appears to let the audience think that they've seen through the trick, but is really a distraction from what the magician is actually doing. So, for example, the magician puts a white rabbit in a box, collapses it, and the bunny's not there. But there's a little bit of white fluff sticking out from behind the table. The magician sees it and unsuccessfully tries to hide it as if the trick has gone wrong. This distracts the audience from what he's really doing. While they're completely focused on the fluff, the magician collapses the entire table to show that the rabbit really has disappeared. This is even more amazing for the audience. That white fluff that distracted them is called the sucker bait. So they dummied up a fake battleship around the shell of a dilapidated cruiser, which they privately named the HMS Houdin after the famous magician Houdini. And then they did a bad job of camouflaging it. So the Germans saw through the camouflage and thought they had detected a battleship. 
This made them worry that there was a serious threat to their shipping lanes, which made them take far less efficient routes in order to accomplish their shipping goals. I'll make make mince meat out of that mouth! One of the catchphrases of the cartoon Canadian Mountie Klondike Cat in reference to his arch nemesis, the French-Canadian mouse Savoir-Faire. Operation Bertram was so successful the British tried something similar in the spring and summer of 1943 before the Allied invasion of Sicily in July. This operation was codenamed Operation Husky and inside that were two deception campaigns, Operation Barkley and Operation Mincemeat. Mincemeat came first and took the famous Trout Memo as its cue. The Trout Memo was written in 1939, credited to Admiral John Godfrey, though later textual analysis found it was almost certainly written by the Admiral's assistant, a young lieutenant commander named Ian Fleming, who would go on to create the fictional spy hero James Bond. The memo compared waging war to fly fishing and listed 54 ways that the enemy could be fooled or lured in much the same way that a fisherman tricks trout in a stream in order to hook them. So two British intelligence agents were sent to a London hospital and got hold of the body of a homeless Welshman named Glyndir Michael who died after eating rat poison. They dressed Michael as a Royal Marines officer named William Martin, Captain, Acting Major complete with identification papers and love letters from and a picture of a fake girlfriend, Pam, plus a receipt for a diamond engagement ring. They also put fake letters in his pockets that purported to be between two generals planning an invasion of Sardinia and Greece, mentioning that at first they were going to try and make it look like they were going to invade Sicily, but that would be a feint to cover the actual invasions of Sardinia and Greece. Future U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was one of the people who brought the body to the waters off southern Spain in a submarine, releasing it close to shore. It was found the next day by two fishermen who brought it to the attention of the local military authorities. Spain was chosen as the target location because the Spanish are Catholics, it was thought, and they dislike conducting post-mortems, so they would be more likely to take what they saw at face value. Here is an Allied officer who drowned. Although fascist Spain technically was neutral in the war, they often shared intelligence with German military intelligence, the Abwehr. The Germans completely fell for it and moved to reinforce Greece and Sardinia, but left no reinforcements in Sicily. Upon learning of their success, British intelligence, in a nod to the Trout memo, cabled Prime Minister Winston Churchill, quote, mincemeat swallowed rod, line, and sinker. This is not the first time such a grisly decoy had been used. In August 1942, just before Operation Bertram commenced, a corpse was put in a car that had blown up in a German minefield, its pockets containing a map that seemed to show British minefields, but when the Germans tried to lead their tanks around those minefields, they would actually fall into soft sand and sinkholes. To reinforce the concocted evidence of mincemeat, Operation Waterfall was tasked with creating a decoy army in Libya that looked like it was going to go towards the Balkans as if Greece was indeed the intended target. This included British and American personnel building inflatable decoy tanks and trucks. Operation Animals kicked off in late June and lasted three weeks, which encouraged the Greek populace to start rising up and causing all kinds of trouble for the occupying Germans, mainly attacking infrastructure and rail lines. This further cemented the idea in the Germans' minds that Greece was indeed going to be invaded. 
Operation Animals resulted in 41 Germans killed in fighting, 92 executed by makeshift vigilante squads, and another 129 wounded, as well as the destruction of 22 airplanes. On the Greek side, 32 people were killed, 165 executed by the Germans, and 16 villages were completely depopulated and then razed to the ground. And yeah, where is that movie? However, there is a well-received musical in London's West End called Operation Mincemeat, which is touted as Singing in the Rain meets Strangers on a Train. And there is a 2022 Netflix film of the same title, Operation Mincemeat, starring Matthew McFadden, Colin Firth, Kelly MacDonald, and Jason Isaacs, directed by John Madden, who did Shakespeare in Love, as well as Series 4 of the TV show Prime Suspect and a number of radio adaptations of Star Wars movies. Don't touch the sides. sides. That's a line from advertisements for the Milton Bradley game Operation, which is now made by Hasbro. Operation Barkley took all of these previous ideas and sort of supersized them. They literally built an entire decoy army in the Eastern Mediterranean called the 12th Army, made up of 12 completely fake divisions. As a result of mincemeat, waterfall, animals, and Barkley, the Allied invasion of Sicily, which was Operation Husky, was a total surprise, taking far less time and resulting in far fewer casualties than expected. And this basically started the collapse of Mussolini's regime just a couple of weeks into the invasion and occupation of the island. Well, that sure seemed to work out well, so why not use similar tactics when planning an even bigger invasion? like of Northwest Europe and opening a Western Front on Nazi-occupied territory. Operation Overlord, as it was called, had chosen the beaches of Normandy and France as the best landing site, and Operation Neptune would be the water landings part of that. To distract the Germans with false leads and nonsense, Operation Bodyguard was started in 1943, almost a full year before the Overlord invasion would take place. The main objectives of bodyguard were to confuse the Wehrmacht High Command as to when and where the invasion was going to happen. It was decided they'd plant false trails indicating the invasion would happen much later than June 44 and probably at Calais, not Normandy. There would also be false leads showing that maybe the invasion would take place someplace else entirely. Dudley Clark, the man behind the successful Operation Bertram in North Africa, had set up the Advanced Headquarters A-Force, a deception department based in Cairo. He worked with Colonel Johnny Brevin, head of the London Controlling Section, to develop Bodyguard and all of its sub-operations. A-Force started Operation Cockade, which involved deception operations to divert attention from the military buildup in southeast England and to make it seem the invasion would happen at Brest in Brittany in France, that was called Operation Wadham, or in Boulogne, just south of Calais in France, that was Operation Starkey, or even in Norway, Operation Tyndall. Overall, cockade was a cock-up, and the top brass maybe thought these deception operations weren't working out so well. Nonetheless, something called Plan Jail was put into place as a first step. This was an attempt to make the Germans think the invasion would happen in mid-1945, and the current plan was to gain a foothold in the Balkans, and bombard Axis forces from there. This seemed much more promising than cockade and Tyndall and Wadham. And further planning sessions outlined a comprehensive plan that was finally approved on Christmas Day 1943. The name for the overall scheme, Bodyguard, was taken directly from something Churchill had said to Stalin at the Tehran Conference in late November. Quote, 
In wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. First up was to adapt the failed efforts of Cockade into Operation Fortitude. This would create uncertainty about where the invasion would happen. Fake tanks, fake planes, and other material were created using techniques pioneered by Dudley Clark during Bertram. Fortitude also used fake radio signals, leaks of false information through diplomats and double agents who'd been turned by MI5. Three of the more active double agents were Codenamed Garbo, a Spanish citizen named Juan Pujol Garcia, who volunteered to spy for the Allies. He created a fake network of 27 agents across Britain who would then, quote, discover information to be relayed back to Spain and thus passed on to the Nazis. But the Germans and the Spanish had no idea that he'd been doubled. And in fact, his work was so good that the Nazis gave him the Iron Cross for his amazing work done on their behalf. Codenamed Brutus, an officer from Poland who'd been running an underground spy network in occupied France when he was captured by the Germans and turned to their side. On his first trip to England as a German double agent, he told British intelligence what has happened and so tripled was once again working for the Allies. And codenamed Tricycle, a lawyer from Serbia named Dusko Popov, who had been convinced to spy for Yugoslavia, where they gave him the codename Dusko, which is his actual name. The Germans then decided they could use his talent, so they recruited him, giving him the codename Ivan, because he's Slavic. But what neither nation knew is that Popov hated Nazism, so he promptly offered his services to MI5, who codenamed him Tricycle because he ran three double agents. His cover was that he was a rich, flamboyant playboy and included romancing the famous French actress Simone Simon. It is thought that Popov was the main model for Ian Fleming's later famous character of James Bond. So Juan Garcia, a.k.a. Garbo, was also part of the smaller Operation Ironside, which was one of the smaller sub-ops inside Bodyguard. He was joined by Wolf Schmidt, a Dane who was parachuted into Britain as a German spy, immediately captured because a friend and fellow spy in Britain had been captured and had given up details of Schmidt's arrival. So after he was arrested just moments after touching the ground, he was turned and given the codename Tate. He would go on to become one of the longest-running double agents working against the Nazis, working all the way until May 2, 1945. Codenamed Bronx was a woman named Elvira Chaudoir, a Peruvian double agent. Now, the main story for Ironside, which involved Garbo, Tate, and Bronx, was that the Allies would invade along the coast much further south than Normandy and try and take Bordeaux. But the Germans didn't really take the bait. Bordeaux seemed an implausible target, and the intelligence they passed seemed uncertain. There were even some memos from German officers who said that they thought all these Bordeaux rumors might in fact be a type of deception. There was Operation Grafham, aimed to suggest the Allies were trying to form political ties with neutral Sweden in a lead-up to invading occupied Norway. This also never really took off, though Operation Royal Flush tried to make it look like Britain, the U.S., and the USSR were trying to form closer ties with Sweden, Spain, and Turkey with an aim that these countries would bar German presence in their countries once they successfully invaded Norway. Operation Zeppelin had a force building three fake armies in Egypt to make it look like the attack was going to happen in Greece and the Balkans. 
We can scare you, but you can't scare us. This is a line from a TV commercial for three General Mills monster cereals. Booberry, Frankenberry, and Count Chocula. In January 1944, the newly formed American 23rd Headquarters Special Troops arrived in Britain, stationed near Shakespeare's old hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. Their nickname was the Ghost Army, and after the war, special patches were made for veterans showing a cartoon ghost shooting lightning out of one hand. Many of these recruits were not your typical soldiers. They came from art schools and advertising agencies, architecture firms, and other creative fields, even some legal professionals. Some famous folks who were part of the Ghost Army are the fashion designer Bill Blass, artist Ellsworth Kelly, and photographer Art Kane. The overall goal of the Ghost Army was to make it seem like this unit of only 1,100 men was actually two whole divisions, 30,000 strong. It was thought that this would consistently divert German resources from other locations. Part of this deception was accomplished by the 603rd Camouflage Engineers who built inflatable airplanes, tanks, trucks, and other vehicles. They'd inflate them and then hide them using camouflage but do a poor job hiding them so German reconnaissance planes could spot them and photograph them. They even created fake biovacs complete with soldiers' laundry hanging out on a line to dry. And sometimes a real tank or artillery gun would be added in a group of fakes in order to further bolster the illusion. There's an excellent Edgar Award-winning novel by Ken Follett, which was made into a very good film starring Donald Sutherland, sort of about this. Eye of the Needle has German spy Henry Faba, whose codename is Dinadel, or The Needle, because he kills using a stiletto, who, after a bit of a kerfuffle, kills his landlady and is sent to check out the 1st United States Army Group in England, but discovers, once he's there in person, that the whole thing is fake. This army group, which acronym is TFUSAG, was part of Operation Quicksilver, which was a revised version of Fortitude under the command of General George Patton. He then tries to escape to Aberdeen in Scotland to hop on a U-boat to go back to Germany and tell his superiors, hey, this is a ruse. Fortunately, this is a work of fiction, but there was always this danger that these complicated ruses under the bodyguard umbrella might be discovered. Had that happened, D-Day would have either been a massive failure or just never happened at all. Another physical element the Ghost Army employed is what they called atmosphere. This was a broad category of deceptive tools that included fake unit or divisional insignia, placing two drivers in a truck that had one insignia, and then driving them past a German surveillance post, going in a big circle, changing the insignia on the truck and their uniforms, and then driving past once more, repeating this over and over and over again to make it look like there were dozens and dozens of trucks from several military groups when actually it was just two guys, one truck, some paint, and some talented artists. They'd also dress soldiers as MPs or officers from various divisions and have them walk around a town or visit a bar and make sure that they were seen by any Germans in the area and by locals that were known to be sympathetic to the Nazis. Sound was also used by the Ghost Army under the management of the 3132 Signal Service Company Special under the command of Colonel Hilton Rayleigh, a man who'd been instrumental in recruiting the likes of Frank Capra to make films to boost soldier morale. He also claims to have discovered Amelia Earhart and kicked off her career, but we're interested in him because he was a pioneer 
in the use of sonic deception. The 3132 gang teamed up with some Bell Labs engineers and recorded sounds of troops and tanks and trucks at Fort Knox. These were all recorded on separate tracks and could be mixed on the fly while in the field to create different audio landscapes that would give the impression of various scenarios. Huge speakers were then set up on cross-country vehicles known as half-tracks, and the sounds could be heard from as far away as 15 miles. The 23rd Signal Company Special was in charge of what they called spoof radio. They made fake traffic nets, learned various operators' Morse code styles, because apparently no two people use Morse exactly the same way. So they could then impersonate whichever operator they liked in order to confuse the Germans as to who was where. So, for example, if the Germans knew that the operator Bob is always with a certain general and his presence at a location would indicate something big as a foot, so the 23rd would impersonate Bob to make the Germans think that he and the general were in one particular place when in fact they were actually someplace else altogether. One spoof radio operator, Spike Barry said, quote, Radio was the stage setter. We painted a picture for German intelligence in their mind as to what was going on. As another member of the 23rd, Sergeant Stanley Nance put it, quote, Could I have sent just one radio message that changed the tide of battle where one mother or one new bride was spared the agony of putting a gold star in their front window? That's what the 23rd headquarters was all about. Many think Operation Bodyguard would not have been a success without the Ghost Army. The German 15th Army, completely taken in by the Americans' covert deception tactics, hung around Calais for seven weeks, which gave the Allies the time they needed to build a beachhead after the Normandy landings on D-Day. So, yay Americans! However, many military historians say the Ghost Army would never have existed had it not been for Dudley Clark's A-Force and Operation Cockade, even though it was a failure, which fed directly into Operation Fortitude. So, yay Brits! After D-Day, the Ghost Army conducted many operations to confuse, confound, and deceive the enemy all across Europe. Their last exploit was to be part of Operation Wiersen, which was designed to make the Germans think a massive crossing of the Rhine was taking place far from where it was actually taking place. The Ghost Army impersonated two full divisions as 40,000 men. It worked, and the Germans poured resources into the area to get what they thought was the real army. So then when the two real divisions attacked several miles away to the north, they met with minimal and confused resistance, and there were surprisingly few casualties on both sides. The existence of the Ghost Army was a closely held classified secret until 1996. Surfing Surfing USA, USA. the 1963 hit song by the Beach Boys. Now, this was all army business, the Ghost Army, but the Navy had also got in on the deception game, mainly thanks to a famous actor. In 1941, Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s 64th film, Angels Over Broadway, was out in cinemas, and his 65th film, the swashbuckling adaptation of the Alexandre Dumas book, The Corsican Brothers, had wrapped shooting and was in post when President Roosevelt made him special envoy to South America as part of some diplomatic efforts there. He was on board the heavy cruiser the USS Wichita when it was attacked as part of an Arctic convoy during the PQ-17 disaster, where ships sailing from Iceland to the USSR, these ships were located by the Germans and attacked almost continuously for two full weeks. 
Well, Fairbanks was too high profile to lose in combat, so he was moved to Virginia Beach, where Admiral H. Kent Hewitt was his commander in the lead-up to American forces invading North Africa. For a while, Fairbanks was sent to a training facility in southern England called HMS Tormentor, where he took part in commando exercises that included deceptive practices, even taking part in a few raids to see firsthand how effective fooling the enemy could be. When he returned to the U.S., he was convinced a deception unit was a grand idea, and at this point, America was now firmly in the war since the Pearl Harbor attack had happened. He pressured Admiral Hewitt to contact the Commander-in-Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Ernest King, to pitch him the idea. King agreed, and a highly classified program was started on March 5, 1943, four months before Bodyguard in England entered the planning stages. This new program was tasked with recruiting 180 officers and 300 enlisted men. The idea was to make a small amphibious landing force seem like a much larger one. So instead of 300 men, they would use deceptive practices and distance from enemy observers to give the impression that they were really 70,000 men. The enemy would then go, eek, that's a lot of guys, and divert massive resources to combat the force that they saw, while the real crew, being few in number, were agile and could harass and use what came to be known as the BJ factor after one member said that their job was to, quote, scare the bejesus out of the enemy. People thought this was funny and started using the term BJ factor, which inspired the code name for the group where everything was labeled BJ 1, 2, 3, and 4, and so on. When someone asked what the BJ stood for, well, nobody wanted to say bejesus, so they said beach jumpers. And so the group has come down to us in history as the beach jumpers. The first combat deployment was during Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily on July 10th, 1943. They laid down smoke and then had sound boats that had big speakers on them run back and forth behind the smoke, giving the impression, using sound, that there were many, many large vessels in there. And they fired off a few rockets for good measure. Then two nights later, they used deception tactics and equipment to make the Germans think a massive landing was taking place at a location that was actually completely deserted. During the course of Husky, Unit BJU-1, Beach Jumper Unit 1, pinned down the entire German Reserve Division using only sound and diversionary tactics. The Beach Jumpers took part in action all over the European theater, including an amphibious assault on southern France led by Fairbanks himself. Once the war was over, the Beach Jumpers were deactivated. Fairbanks went back to Hollywood looking around for a big movie that would signal his comeback. He tried in 1947 with Sinbad the Sailor, but that was a flop. And in fact, even though he'd go on to make many more movies, including several in the UK, he never really regained his former superstar status. Such is how fickle fame can be. In 1951, the Beach Jumpers were started up again, though there were many who thought maybe these methods were, you know, quaint and no longer effective in this new age of combat. To prove their worth, the Beach Jumpers sent radio messages to all ship's commanders while impersonating the force commander, ordering them all to appear at the flagship the next morning at 6 a.m. sharp. Over half of them thought it was a legitimate order and showed up. And yes, indeed, there was a lot of egg on a lot of faces when the truth came out. But the Beast Jumpers had made their point. They were clearly still an effective force. 
They became experts in imitative deception and pioneered electronic warfare as well as integrating psychological operations, what would later become known as PSYOPs, in order to achieve intelligence objectives. Some of their techniques were adopted in the formation of the United States Navy Sea, Air, and Land Teams, also known by the acronym the Navy SEALs. Beach jumpers were active during the Vietnam War, jamming Soviet cruiser signals with recordings of bagpipes, sowing confusion and chaos in their wake. The beach jumpers eventually got absorbed into the larger naval organizational structure in 1972 when the name was retired. Former members are allowed to join the UDL SEAL Association for Special Warfare Veterans as associate members. Would I lie to you? A 1985 song by synth-pop duo Eurythmics from their fourth album, Be Yourself Tonight. The practice of mildeck or military deception predates World War II, of course. One of the earliest recorded instances comes from 1450 BCE, when the pharaoh Tutmos III was besieging the city of Yapu, which today is called Jaffa, a southern suburb of Tel Aviv. General Jehuti hid soldiers in baskets, then had those baskets delivered to the city with the message that the Egyptians had given up and here was some tribute for you. Then the soldiers came out of the baskets, opened up the gates, and led in the main Egyptian army, which quickly took control of the city. This is a story that would be repeated most famously in Homer's Iliad with the Trojan horse ruse thought up by the wily Odysseus, somewhere between the 9th and 6th centuries BCE. Speaking of clever Greeks, in 326 BCE, Alexander of Macedon, the Great, after being thwarted again and again in crossing the Jelum River, at the time known as the Hydaspis, by Porus, king of what's now the Punjab, had an assistant keep the campfires burning so it looked like the army was in one spot attempting to cross there, but in fact, they were crossing 17 miles to the south. They then snuck up on King Poros and his forces, who had been completely fooled and utterly defeated them. Fire was similarly used in 341 BCE by the Chinese general Sun Bin of the Qi against the Wai. Qi had a reputation for being a small, weak army, so the Wai weren't really that bothered about them. Sun Bin had 100,000 campfires lit the first night, 50,000 the second night, and only 30,000 the third. The Wai general, Pang Juan, thought that the Qi soldiers were deserting in record numbers, and so he was easily tricked into leading a much smaller force into a narrow gorge where he thought the remnant was hanging around and he would finish them off. But, ha-ha, the area had been set up as a trap, with the full key army waiting in ambush. The battle went very badly for Juan, who committed suicide from shame and having been fooled so effectively. The Chinese have developed a series of 36 stratagems for warfare. The 32nd one is known as the Empty Fort Strategy, probably first used by the warlord Cao Cao in 195 CE. This involves seeming to abandon a fort or stronghold, but then leave behind evidence that there are so many traps or ambushes lying in wait that occupying the place just isn't worth the effort. The occupying army then leaves, and you just go back in. Chinggis Khan, when facing the Naimans in 1204 CE, had his soldiers light five campfires each to give the impression he had a much larger force. The Mongols would also sometimes tie leafy branches to their horses' tails, which would raise up so much dust the onlookers thought the approaching force was much larger than it really was. 
though sometimes they would try to seem smaller than they were, writing single file to raise less dust and making it harder to count hoofprints and so estimate the size of the invading force. During the Ninth Crusade, the Sultan Baybars was besieging Christian knights inside the Crac de Chevalier, a castle in Syria. So he had a letter forged that looked like it came from the knight's commander, ordering them all to surrender. They didn't really understand it, but orders is orders, and they bought it, so they did, and then Baybars took the castle with no loss of life. And so it goes. During the American War of Independence against the British, they employed guerrilla tactics that often threw the redcoats into confusion and disarray, Ironically, those same tactics would then leave the Americans wrong-footed when they were used against them during the Vietnam War. Two classics of military strategy take opposing views on using deception in the field. Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu, in his 5th century BCE classic The Art of War, says it's a great idea and often can be the deciding factor in a, a victory. He literally says, quote, all warfare is based on deception. But Prussian general and strategist Karl von Clausewitz, in his book On War, says that the fog of war confuses things already, so deception attempts will either have no meaningful effect or might even lead to confusing one's own side. Fog of war refers to how on the ground, during the execution of a military operation, situational awareness becomes uncertain. Mildek attempts to exploit that uncertainty by increasing the uncertainty or by exploiting the human need for clarity by leaving false clues to build a narrative that benefits the deceivers. So you might want to cause the enemy to delay an action of their own or be ill-prepared for one of your own actions. You might want them to misallocate personnel and resources. You might want them to inadvertently reveal strengths, weaknesses, and intentions. Or you might just want them to waste time and resources. Mildek has five main tactics. Ruse, exposing the enemy to false information so they reach incorrect conclusions about the friendly side's plans. Feints, an offensive action that makes the enemy think a main attack is happening at a particular time or place, but isn't. It's basically a fake attack. Diversions, displays and ruses, which includes feints that lead enemy forces away from a main effort. Demonstration, making it seem that soldiers, vehicles, and supplies are in a certain place in certain numbers conducting certain activities when this is not the case. And display, making it seem that soldiers, vehicles, and weapons are being built up in a certain place. Over the years, various deception efforts have led to a few rules and guidelines. For the most part, there are four commonly used guidelines. Something called Magruder's Principle which is it is easier to deceive an enemy into maintaining a pre-existing belief than believe something new. The name comes from the Confederate General John Magruder, who during the American Civil War's Peninsula Campaign in Southeast Virginia, knew his opponent, George McClellan, had overestimated the size of the Confederate force. So Magruder had his soldiers perform parade drills, walking past Union observers, and then secretly run around and rejoin the line to make it look like there were way more soldiers than there really were. This worked because it simply confirmed what McClellan actually thought was true already. Obviously, during World War to Operation Mincemeat, the ruse with the dead homeless Welshman, was a success because the Germans already thought that the Allies were planning an invasion, thanks to other deception campaigns. There's Jones's Dilemma. The more intelligence gathering and transmitting resources an enemy has, the harder it is to deceive them. 
On the one hand, the more of an enemy's intelligence systems that are manipulated during a deception, the more likely the deception is to succeed. This is named by British scientist and military specialist Reginald Victor Jones, who developed jammers for radio signals that helped German aircraft land quickly and safely, and came up with the idea of fooling radar systems using ribbons of metal foil called chaff, something we still use today. Another guideline is avoid windfalls. If the target gets the deceptive information too easily, they're unlikely to believe it or act on it. Instead, co-opt their natural skepticism. However, this psychological truth can sometimes backfire. Early in World War II, Allies got intelligence that said a plane with three German officers heading to the city of Cologne had got lost in a storm and ended up diverting to Belgium. These officers were carrying the actual invasion plans for the invasion of Belgium and Netherlands. They tried to burn the documents, but failed to do so before the Belgians showed up and arrested them. But when the Belgians found this treasure trove of information, they discounted it, thinking it some sort of deception. It had simply been too easy to discover the Germans' actual invasion plans, and so they just disregarded the information. Belgium and the Netherlands both fell on May 10, 1940, after a five-day advance that followed those disregarded plans almost exactly. And the last main guideline is multiple forms of surprise. There's an acronym for friendly events that can deceive an enemy. Salute IS. This stands for Size, Activity, Location, Unit, Time, Equipment, Intent, and Style. The idea is the more of these categories that the enemy can be tricked about, the better the chances the deception has of succeeding. Also, if the enemy already has pretty solid information about one of these categories, it will be very difficult to convince them otherwise. So, for example, the Germans knew with a high degree of certainty that the Allies were going to invade occupied Europe, that the invasion force would come from England and would start somewhere along the French coast. So therefore, parts of Operation Bodyguard that tried to suggest alternative information, like no, they're going to invade Norway, were less successfully bought by the Germans. But the parts of Bodyguard intended to deceive the Germans about the exact date and exact location were far more successful. If all this is sounding a little bit like the playbook for those who wish to promote alternative facts, be they about UFOs, the Tartarian Empire, COVID-19, or the 2020 U.S. election, that's because many of the same tactics and techniques are being used in those efforts. Perhaps this is just the inevitable legacy of the Cold War, which, rather than involving armed military conflict, was primarily clandestine and filled with disinformation. The conspiratorially minded might say these deception techniques are purposely being used on the civilian populace worldwide. Or skeptical people might say that what has happened is that this sort of thing has simply trickled down into the civilian sphere over the years. The military has long had influence beyond its purview. A few years ago, there were several articles noting how military fashion has had a direct impact on the non-military world. Neckties, peacoats, trench coats, cardigan sweaters, bomber jackets, Wellington rain boots, aviator glasses and Ray-Bans, Doc Martens, white t-shirts, cargo pants, and of course anything with camo patterning all come from the military. At its heart, all deception is really based on human perception and psychology. So is stage magic. So is the art of the short con and the long con. And so is the creation and promulgation of conspiracy theories. 
The fact is, we're all not nearly as clever as we think we are. To some extent, everyone falls victim to the Dunning-Kruger effect, a cognitive bias in which the less a person knows about a subject, the more confident they are that their opinions about it are correct. And that makes it easy to fool us. The counter-strike, vigilance, confirmation, verification from reasonable sources. That is how you defeat the nebulous ghost army of conspiracy fake news disinformation peddlers that is all over the internet today. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>